Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Talking Supply Chain, how to get more from your robots. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today are A.K. Schultz, David Pepper, and Florian Pastani. Florian, did I pronounce that correctly? Um, You did, Bob. Thank you. Oh, great. Okay. Um, A.K. is the CEO of SVT Robotics. David is the CEO of Next Generation Robotics. And Florian is the CEO and co-founder of InOrbit. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you for joining me today. This is an episode long in the making, mostly because of our crazy schedules, but it's one I'm really looking forward to. And so to set the stage, let me tell you two real quick stories. A couple of years ago, I had a VP from DHL as a presenter at the NextGen conference. Now, DHL is without question the 3PL leader in the adoption of robotics. They've got over 2,000 Locust bots in operation worldwide. And Locust is only one of DHL's suppliers. The VP spent 30 minutes talking about robot execution software system that DHL had developed without ever once mentioning an actual robot. And when I pointed that out, he said, well, that's because the robot is a commodity. The software makes all the difference. Now, more recently, I had a conversation with the innovation leader at a major appliance maker. He drew a picture of a project he wanted to implement where an autonomous mobile robot would pick up a finished part at the end of the line it would deliver those parts to shipping the parts would be automatically loaded onto an autonomous electric vehicle would which would then deliver them to an assembly plant on the same campus once it got to the assembly plant uh, the parts would be automatically unloaded and another robot would deliver them to the assembly line the problem he said is that all the robot companies had proprietary software and nobody wanted to share their code so he couldn't integrate the solution or at least not do it in the way he wanted to so again The problem wasn't the robot, it was the software. That's a very long preamble to my three guests who are all in the robotic software business. They have robot in their name, but they're actually doing the software, not the hardware. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about, including the niche that each of them fills because they're not really competitors. They're all doing something a little bit different and in many respects complement one another. And I also want to get a sense from them how they see this space playing out. So let's get started. AK, I'm going to start with you, mostly because I've known you the longest, and I think you were the first to market in your space. So tell us about SVT Robotics and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Um, SVT Robotics, we're here to solve um, a problem in the market, and that's allowing companies to become flexible in their business by being able to adopt technology really rapidly and to be able to adopt that technolo- the technology they want, not be you know subscribe to one company to one technology to rule them all and we do this through our interoperability layer that allows companies to rapidly connect disparate technologies without ever having them to work with each other and doing it through a low code environment um, therefore solving this speed problem and supportability problem so, David, same question to you. Tell us what you're going after at Next Generation uh, Robotics. Um, yeah, thanks very much, Bob, for putting this together. 
Um, all three of the companies here fit into what would be called the middleware layer between the WMS on the one hand and the robots on the other. This is software that used to be supplied just by the robot companies themselves. And now we're just kind of emerging a team of different companies doing different parts of that. So what we do at NextGen Robotics is we do the optimization part of the connection. That is, you may have robots from one fleet or multiple fleets. Uh, they all need to be able to work together to get stuff done. Uh, so you need, at the very least, an eye in the sky that knows where everything is and is playing traffic on. Um, and beyond that, of course, you want to optimize your execution throughout the day, sending the right tasks to the right robots. Uh, so that's what we do. We, we add optimization to the mix of whether you have a single fleet or multiple fleets working together. And then Florian, uh, finally, same question to you. Tell us a little bit about InOrbit and the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, thanks, Bob. So um, InOrbit is a data platform for robot operations. Uh, we like to say we do robots at scale. So if you're familiar with the term DevOps, uh, we're bringing some of those best practices and tools to the world of robotics. So as, as you said very well, we don't make robots, but as I like to say, we make the robots better. Um, and um, the way we approach it is with a uh, robot agnostic platform. Um, a lot of the intelligence is in the cloud, but it's a distributed platform to connect any robot um, we work both with the robot developers, the people making the robots to help them um, you know, get more out of the, the robots that they produce, as well as increasingly with the end users, the companies that are deploying the robots. And they, as you said, they don't really care that much about the robots. They care about their own operations being you know, more efficient, their teams uh, being more productive. Um, so that's, that's kind of like our approach is, or, or our mission even, is to maximize the potential of every robot. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys a question that was based actually on a conversation I just had yesterday. Um, it, it's not one of the ones we discussed, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, so I talked to a robot company yesterday, and, and we were talking about this issue. I mentioned the, the GE issue and not sharing code um, and mentioned that I was going to be doing this you know, podcast today. And... And and we had an interesting response, and it kind of it, the response almost goes to what the DHL guy, which was said, which is that you know to us the robot is a commodity, and um, and and I did an interview with a guy from MSC Industrial um, who said to me that you know they don't care what robot they use, it's all about the software. The robot's a commodity, and the the hesitation uh, the robot guy said to me the other day of robot people like himself you know, sharing code and doing these other things is it's going to result in the commoditization of the robot. Um, is that kind of short-sighted or, you know, it, 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 like, you know, it, is the rest of the market going to start looking at it the way like DHL does? As in, they don't care about the robot. I think it was yeah, Florian who just said that. Anybody want to take a swing at it? I'll, I'll give it a shot uh, if, if you want. So I, I think there's there's still plenty of room for differentiation uh, with robots, but I think we're past the point where it was, you know, a, a science project or a, a marvel. Oh, look, a robot that can move on its own. Uh, I think that's taken for granted now. And where the differentiation might be is in 
know, maybe one robot has a more efficient navigation algorithm. So even robot manufacturers have software uh, components that, that they can use to differentiate. Um, and I think, you know, what we can expect from end users is they'll want to use the best robot for their specific use case and for each task. So you're not going to see a single robot vendor. Um, as the market grows, I think this is this is a healthy direction. And as a robot manufacturer, you'll, you know, if you can scale to tens of thousands of robots, uh, there's still plenty of opportunity. Great. All right, I'm going to go back to the uh, previously uh, programmed uh, or previous uh, programming. So uh, I want to give this one to all three of you. Um, going back to the two anecdotes I started off with, um, why has software become so important uh, to the adoption of robots? Florian, let's start with you. We start with AK on the last one. All right, yeah, um, I, I think the the next generation of robots, the, the ones that we're seeing right now, they're, they're software machines, they're data machines. Uh, they have sensors. So unlike the traditional uh, fixed function robots that you see in manufacturing, where you program them once and they carry the same task over and over, uh, really it's the software that's driving the robots today. They're, like I mentioned before, there's sensors, there's uh, computer vision algorithms, all of this has to come together. Um, so already, uh, like we, we see these robots as, as data machines uh, and software eats data for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I think that's becoming more critical. Um, I think we're going from this early phase where, you know, you had one robot, you worked on it on a pilot for years and it kind of worked. And then eventually you said, okay, fine. It has positive ROI. Let's get some more in here to where the deployment is a lot faster. Uh, in some cases, it's, you know, in a couple of days, you can have robots uh, up and running. But once they're running, they need to, you know, exist in a software world. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's where that comment from, from the HL was coming from. And I think what, what we want to see is uh, more and more of the smarts of running, whether it's a warehouse or, you know, intralogistics or whatever it might be um, being handled through software because software can be dynamic and adjust very quickly. So AK, uh, do you want to take a shot at this? Given your previous, you know, life before SVT Robotics, you know, you had an awful lot of experience trying to integrate different, you know, automated materials handling systems and whatnot. So um, talk, uh, talk a little bit about the importance of robotics here. I, I'm sorry, the importance of software. Well, I feel very strongly that uh, software is robotics, given that robotics is in the name of our company and we make no machines whatsoever. So I'm all in on that. I think if you look at the evolution of robotics, it all started with manipulation, right? And in the recent years, it has moved from static manipulation to complex manipulation and complex navigation, dealing with highly variable areas. But now what we're seeing is the ability to be seamlessly interoperable and that opens the door to orchestration and beyond that optimization, right? And this is, um, you know, the place that we're playing is saying, how do we make things interoperable and how do we orchestrate 
so that we can open the door for other software platforms to help optimize. Um, I'd also say this, when it comes to like a company like DHL, a lot of times they, the way they view software, they actually cannot separate their business processes very far from um, their software. They're inextricably linked. And when you try to adapt robots into their operations, you are adapting it into their software. And that's why it's hard to uh, David? Yeah, I, I echo everything that AK and Florian was saying. The analogy I make is to the PC industry in the 70s and 80s, where control passed more or less from the hardware makers to the software makers, from the Xeroxes and HPs and IBMs to the, uh, the Microsofts and the Googles and the Oracles and so on. So I think here too, I understand the robot companies are worried about commoditization, uh, just like PC companies did at the same time. But of course, there's still a lot of room for creativity and differentiation. You can make a robot that carries really heavy loads or that can reach way up high or that can sense very carefully different boxes within a larger environment. So I think there's still room for the robot companies, but it is true that once they become interoperable, the idea that they're going to create their own closed ecosystem is probably going to go by the wayside. Uh, David, I'm going to start this next question with you. Um, I, I, you know, I was at the MHI fall meeting um, this year. Um, I'm, I'm uh, active in the uh, robotics community or the robotics solution community there. There's a sense um, that I get from them that when, you know, there is an awful lot of energy, you know, a lot of promise around robotics. But when you get outside of, you know, um, 2,000 Locust bots at DHL or 1,000 Ichiotas, when you get outside of the 3PLs, adoption has been slower um, than you might imagine, given all the attention that robots are getting. Uh, and again, starting with David, how do the three of you size up the market right now? What, just, what, what do you guys see happening in it in terms of adoption and evolution? Yeah, I, I think the last word you mentioned, evolution, is the correct one. Um, we'd all wish that things would happen more quickly and more dramatically, but I think this is kind of normal. You know, it takes something to have a warehouse that's set up to use robotics. Um, you're going to need a lot more uh, energy flowing into the, um, to the facility as well as charging stations and all that. And we have to remember that a, a third of the warehouses in existence now are over 50 years old. 70% uh, were built uh, last last century, last millennium. So I think when you see new warehouses being built, they're all built with robots in mind. And so uh, we are moving from the age where it's the, the big players at the top are the ones who really use robotics to what Zach Stewart Rogers, a professor at Colorado says, is the, an emerging middle class of robotics users. That is, it's gonna be easier for even the small and middle size uh, operations to use robots effectively. Uh, you know, David, an interesting data point. Um, I, I don't know if this is exactly accurate. This, this um, you know, came to me from an analyst, but um, in a conversation with Locus, um, they had said that seven, I believe 70% of their new installations are in greenfield facilities, which kind of goes to your point. Uh, yeah, that new, does make sense. You know, new, new construction being built around robots. Um, mm -hmm. Florian, um, what are you seeing out there? I think we're just getting started. We're seeing the, the uh, Cambrian explosion in robotics. Um, we're tracking on our end uh, 1,500 robotics companies and 
I'm sure there's at least three times as many out there that we haven't heard of yet. Um, I think we're likely to see some, uh, you know, high mortality rate uh, in, 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 in the next uh, couple of years. But out of that, we'll see some really strong players emerge. Uh, we now have multiple companies that have surpassed, uh, you know, 5,000 robots deployed, um, but which sounds like a lot. But when you think about DHL having 5,000 warehouses, uh, then that puts some perspective on how early we are, even with some of these, uh, you know, early adopters like DHL. Um, and then there's there's robots in a lot of other tasks, right? It's not all. Uh, you know, material, and ha material handling. Um, you have robots in retail doing inventory. Um, you have cleaning robots. Um, so, for example, at Enorbit, we work with uh, one of the largest uh, cleaning, uh, industrial cleaning equipment companies. Um, so you see established companies, like in this case, it's a company called Karcher out of Germany. Um, yeah, and they, as you know, they have, you know, operations in 80 countries. They're not, no startup. Uh, so you see established companies adding, um, you know, robotics capabilities. So I think we're, we're start, just getting started and we're going to see a lot more adoption over the next uh, next five years and, and decade. Uh, AK? Yeah, I mean, echoing this, the, we're, we're still in the early adoption phase. And early adopters are willing to put in a lot of time, energy, and talent into this problem. There is definitely a talent shortage in the robotic space that is limiting us. Um, I think David's bringing up the analogy of uh, the, the computer industry. It's very similar to where we were in the 80s and 90s with computing. Um, if you think about right now you have to be very skilled to deploy robotics and if you think back to the days of dos if you can remember that um you had to be pretty proficient to actually operate a computer but then things like windows came out right in you know max operating systems and then the internet comes out right and then usb comes out and suddenly it just gets easier and easier to be a user and ultimately the you know the whole mobile revolution then brings computing into everyone's hands in the form of a phone, right? And so we have not yet seen that widespread adoption of the, of the technologies that will reduce the friction that make all of this work together. The, uh, the, uh, the computer analogy I find really interesting, you know, because I remember not all that long ago, back in the day, if I bought a new computer, you know, a new laptop or a new desktop, I assumed it was going to take an entire day to get it set up. And uh, last January, I upgraded my Surface travel laptop, my regular laptop, and my desktop all on the same day. Brought home, you know, new machines from Staples. Probably two hours. I had all three machines, you know, up and running. And the longest time was the software downloads, you know, as soon as you turn it on. So, so that does really resonate with me. So... Um, AK, you mentioned the dearth of talent. If you think about the impediments, you know, what's holding back either adoption or um, realizing value once they've gone forward? So I think we got a quality and quantity problem in the industry. Um, number one, I estimate there's about 15,000 
automation integration professionals in the United States. Now, if you believe in the growth rates, which I, I'm a believer in that in the next two years, the demand for robotics will double. But I am skeptical that the ability for us to scale the 15,000 people into 30,000 is possible. Um, and a large, largely because the ability for people to, to employ robotics across the entire stack of technology, the, the skill level is just simply too high, which means that as an industry, we need to productize, um, we have to productize the way these uh, robotic alchemists um, operate, right? And so we just have to make it easier, more accessible. It's all about tools. It's about making everything um, more easily. You know, we need to change the way the syntax is away from being usable by computer scientists down to more user looking type people. Um, Florian, back to you. Yeah, I think for the longest time, Bob, the impediment was really, you know, can, can we make this work reliably? Uh, and I think that's a, a lot better now, uh, especially with, with AMRs and, and some of these uh, robots becoming more mature. Um, but I think that's then shifting the need to how do I make them all work together uh, in a way that that as, as AK was saying, you don't need a, you know, a PhD in robotics to, uh, to operate a warehouse. Uh, and when you think about how things work today, you know, grant a comes in and they install their, uh, their dashboards, their monitors. Uh, but if you have multiple things in your warehouse that are automated, there's no single way to integrate it. Um, and, and then you're swiveling your head from one screen to the other that just doesn't scale. So I think the, uh, as we go from, from you know, what I call the science project era of robotics to, to where we are right now, which is um, you know, starting to deploy at scale, um, I think make, having tools that reduce the friction becomes really critical. And uh, if I, I can give you an example. One of the things that um, we're doing at Inorbit is something we call Inorbit Connect, where we are able to talk to different robots through different uh, mechanisms, whether it's, you know, the emerging standards that you're seeing out there, like VDA 5050 or mass robotics as its own uh, interoperability standard. Uh, there's something called open RMF. So there's a little bit of a mess of all of these, you know, standards uh, coming online. Um, and then robots with their own proprietary mechanisms. So we take away all of that complexity. And now there's like, a, you know, once the robot is in Orbit Connect certified, you can talk to it through a you know a common API, um, and now you shift the complexity from a, a robotic specialist, um, well you know like what um, AK was talking about to you know somebody that knows how to write to a REST API, and there's a lot more people that are able to do that. So I think uh, there's there's a combination of reducing the complexity, and um, and making it you know hiding some of that complexity, I guess I would say. Uh, two last questions. Uh, I want to jump to one because I think all three of you have addressed this idea of, you know, multiple kinds of robots. And, you know, the, 
maybe Kiva, you know, started this all. We saw Kiva. It was really a point solution. It was kind of separate from, you know, the rest of the warehouse and distribution center. Locus, um, you know, I think was a was a point solution. Um, but if you talk to Dwight Klapik uh, at Gartner, he believes the next frontier is going to be something that he calls moving from homogenous, meaning, you know, one type of robot to heterogeneous, meaning perhaps multiple types of robots. Um, AK, you use the term holistic solution. And I know I wrote about one of your customers, um, CJ Logistics, that was using autonomous lift trucks, uh, you know, at receiving they were using autonomous pallet jacks and somewhere else. Uh, they had still manual, you know, pick to cart using lights and things. And they integrated all of this together. So they were bringing, you know, not just one type of robot, uh, but multiple at Modex. You went to the right hand booth and you saw a right hand robot picking into a tote on a Six River, you know, AMR. So bringing these different solutions together. Long again, preamble, but how do you guys see that developing? Are we moving, um, you know, the, the example that um, Dwight always uses is healthcare. If you go into a hospital, they got like 40 different types of robots doing 40 different things. But is that starting to happen in warehousing and distribution? And again, AK, I'll start with you because I know CJ Logistics. Yeah, I mean, I think if we look at the fundamental problem is that most enterprise systems and enterprise processes are around people and people are the most flexible robot there is right um now once you try to reduce the amount of people we haven't yet invented a robot that can do everything a human can do which means you have to chop apart the tasks and carve uh you know essentially carve out functionality from what the human has to do and give it to something else and most of these enterprise systems are really designed to to issue commands at that discrete of a level. Um, I think that is one of the biggest things. So like when you talk about how to create a, a bunch of point solutions, well, first you have to break down the tasks into point tasks. Um, we see this as one of the more complicated things. It's one of the things that we have focused on, on solving. Um, once we have that, I think, all of a sudden it gets a lot easier for the point solutions to work in a canvas or a tapestry um, with other robots. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk recently about humanoid robots and, you know, I, I think that's largely driven by, uh, you know, sci-fi that we've all uh, watched or read. Uh, but if you think about, let's say, uh, I'll, I'll start with cleaning a uh, you know million square foot warehouse. Having a humanoid robot and giving it a mop and a bucket would be a terrible way of, of doing that, right? So I think what we're going to see is the emergence of more and more specialized robots. Um, you can see, for example, right now there's multiple companies that all they do is uh, trailer unloading. Uh, they're not going to move. They're not going to do eaches. Uh, again, you need forklifts uh, of different, different heights for different applications. So I think inevitably, as more and more of those specific tasks become automated, you're going to end up in this kind of multi-robot heterogeneous world. Um, and again, as a um, 
as an operator of, of warehouses, uh, like as a, as a 3PL, for example, you really want to be able to pick the best for that, that you know, for your specific use case. Um, and even, you know, try different ones and, and see where each, each can contribute. So I think we're, we're seeing more and more. And I think what's changed from even a couple of years ago when all three of us were talking about orchestration and maybe not as many people were listening uh, to now is the end users are getting behind it and it's becoming part of RFQs, right? If you're not interoperable with other robots, then maybe we won't pick you. And I think that's what's going to drive the industry forward. Uh, David. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo what Florian was just talking about. Uh, you know, he and I were just at a conference in Boston a couple months ago where they had a, a central demo area and different companies would show, you know, what their robots did and show them moving things. And there was maybe a, a few people interested. And then Florian did two demos back to back, one using VDA 5050, the other using mass robotic standards for interoperability, just moving around robots from different companies um, and seeing them all displayed on his, you know, with, with the Inorbit system. And suddenly there were 40 or 50 people around that demo floor. So I would agree that there's this real uptick in interest. Um, and what AK says, it's a matter of breaking down your operations into various tasks. Some will be automatable, some won't. But for those that can, you want to be able to break them down and then build it back up together into one system. And we need standards to do that. Uh, there's you know, various competing standards, and we'll see which ones come into adoption. Uh, but the faster that goes, the faster it will be easier for warehouse owners to be able to start thinking, okay, what is it I need to do? What are the different pieces of the puzzle I'm going to put together? And then just be able to assemble them and go. Uh, you know, something I, I, I find fascinating about what Florian was saying uh, about, you know, some of these robots are going to be task specific, you know, and, and identifying the trailer unloading one. Um, where, where I think that gets interesting, it may not be, you know, two different robots working to, you know, having to integrate to work together for a solution like right hand picking into a tote on a six river that's going to then go somewhere else. Or, you know, if you were at the MHS booth, they had... Um, I think it was Atabotics or High Robotics working with a Tompkins T-Sort or something like that. But rather, if you think about those trailer unloading robots, they might very well be unloading onto uh, an automated conveyor that's now going to be part of the overall system. So they may not have to integrate with another robot, but they have to integrate to create a total, you know, end-to-end -end solution from, from receiving into you know, put away in the storage or receiving maybe all the way through the, to the shipping dock. So it's that that integration still becomes, you know, with the overall system becomes a key. So I'm going to jump to the last question. I'm going to start with David. Uh, look at robotics and warehousing distribution, the space where all three of you are playing. Uh, what, what do you find most exciting? And then we'll go to uh, uh, Florian and AK. So I think it's kind of amazing how the whole warehouse material handling industry is sexy now. Um, it's now seen as a high-tech sector. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems that came, supply chain problems that arose during the pandemic. They showed a very bright light on all the stuff that we're doing. And now all of a sudden it's about the flow of goods through a warehouse. It's about the flow of information. Um, it's about linking systems up together. It has a very different feel to what it did you know, not five, 10 years ago. 
So I, I think the way that our industry is being seen uh, is revolutionary. Uh, it, you know, it, it's kind of like the just-in-time revolution in manufacturing where information can replace inventory. I think it's similar here, but also in, information allows time to become your friend rather than your enemy. That is, rather than worrying about whether or not you're going to get all your orders out on time, now you're thinking, oh, we can, we can guarantee delivery of one or two days, and that's a competitive advantage. And that's all because your supply chain warehousing system is more automated, uh, the information is flowing, it's more integrated. Um, and so it's a very different look on what, what used to be a kind of conservative humdrum in the industry. Uh, uh, Florian, what, what, are you, what are you finding most exciting? What are you looking for next? I think following up on what David was saying, I, I think even a few days ago, a few sorry, a few years ago, uh, the term supply chain was just for for us supply chain geeks, but but now it's it's uh, almost like a household term. Um, we hear about labor shortage, but in the meantime, um, you know, consumer expectations keep mounting. I, you know, going back to the beginnings of e-commerce, you would get you know seven day delivery was the norm. So I did the calculation that's 10,000 minutes. And now you have these like uh, fast delivery companies that do it in 10 minutes uh, or promise to do it. Uh, so that's a lot of change, um, you know, again, with, with all the constraints that, that are built into the system. I think the only way forward is with uh, greater levels of automation. And uh, again, I'm excited that there's more companies entering the space uh, that some of the uh, players are getting to to scale, right? With you know over five thousand robots, I think what we need is we need the best practices and the tools that accompany that growth. Uh, and I think that's where you know our three companies are are able to contribute. And finally, AK, we'll end where we started. Uh, what, what do you find most exciting as you uh, look out across the industry? Well, agreeing with everyone else that. If you had asked me four years ago that supply chain interoperability would be cool, I would have never guessed it. So it's a, it's a nice shift after uh, four years. So um, I would I would say that what it's going to be really cool is the emergence of all these companies that are solving one particular problem and then being able to stitch them together and going away from what the Germans call iron leg and wool milk sows, which is egg laying, wool bearing, milk producing pigs, right? Like this, you know, attacking and trying to be everything to everybody is a fail. And the only way to do this is to actually be able to hook everything together. And by the way, this doesn't just include robots, it includes people. Because I think one of the most fascinating areas is this human in the loop piece. How do we not just integrate robots into human processes, but how do we integrate humans into robot processes? Once again, it's going to take breaking down all the tasks and allowing us to not only, you know, not necessarily just replace humans or robots, but allow them to work together and allow us to flex capacity between the two. But it's, uh, it's becoming more and more possible in real, real life. Well, thank you. Um, that's all the time we have today. A special thanks to A.K. Schultz, David Pepper, and Florian Pistoni. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you'll be back for our next episode for Supply Chain Management Review. I'm Bob Troublecock. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. 
You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.